you can sort of feel nation-shaking power in those prayers, can't you? <laughs> Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to the, to the book of Amos. We're going to look at uh, that prophecy there. It's the book of Amos is just after the Joel. And uh, let me just say a little bit about this book. It's such a, like all scripture, it's such a tremendous book. We could spend a lot of time in it. All we can do is just to touch the surface of these things. And I've just made a few notes here. You might like to read them with me. And that is that this prophecy comes at the end of a whole book of bruising judgments against God's people Israel and Judah. God is not a God of infinite patience. Amen? There comes a point when God says, enough's enough. And here we're meeting such a period. Amos begins in the ten-tribe nation of Israel with, with the king Jeroboam and with Amaziah as the priest, but they don't receive his word and they drive him out and he ends up in Judah where things are not really any better. He begins prophesying about B.C. 755, which is almost contemporary with Isaiah. These two are prophesying at the same time. That helps you to get the picture here. And uh, they're prophesying um, in a situation where it's actually a time of, or has been, a time of national optimism. Um, business is booming. Boundaries are bulging. That is, they are seeing the expansion of their sphere of political influence. But below the surface, greed and injustice are festering. Hypocritical religion has replaced true worship. And in the nation, there's been a false sense of security and a growing callousness towards God's disciplining hand. When God disciplines, it's always wise to regard the first smack. Hello. The writer to the Hebrews in, in chapter 12 says, he says, when God chastens you, he says, don't shrug, don't shrug it off. Excuse me. Don't shrug it off. Don't harden your heart. Otherwise, he'll just put the screws on a bit tighter. On the other hand, when you're chastened, he says, don't faint. Don't collapse into a heap and say, I'm totally no good. No, he's, he's chastening you because he loves you. And here was this nation being chastened and they weren't responding. A preliminary bout of famines, droughts and plagues have not brought God's people to their knees as they should have done. Now Amos is warning that they're going to face the full judgment of God. And here in this, this book, you find the true nature of God's judgment. He watches with grief, even as he allows the fury of Israel's enemies to have its chastening effect upon his people. He gets no pleasure out of it. And those sort of prophetic people that enjoy, you know, a bit like the prophet Jonah, he really wanted them to have a bad time worse than he'd prophesied. And when God decided to show mercy, he was really upset with them. 
And there are certain prophetic voices in the United States right now which have got that tone about them. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that all they're saying is inaccurate. What I'm saying is that the spirit in which they're saying it is totally wrong. If God is sending preliminary warnings to our nation, which I believe he is, and if they're going to get stronger, as I believe they are, then believe me, God's not enjoying this. And his heart's crying out, I believe, for a quick response so he may um, brief, uh, shorten the chastening and, and even avoid some of it. The moment Nineveh repented, God said, forget what I said. <laughs> I won't have to do any of it because there's been repentance. So the judgment of God is never inevitable. It's always um, can be turned back to blessing providing the repentance is, is deep and providing it's genuine. Amen? Amen? But he's hoping that by a quick and humble response he can shorten their suffering. He also declares that although he has allowed and used their enemies to attack them, he will nevertheless make those enemies pay fully because they got pleasure out of their vindictive attacks and they went further than he had intended. You find that sort of message comes again and again. He has says it about Babylon, he says it about Assyria, he says it about all kinds of people. He also promises his people that they will not be completely wiped out but he will gather up the remnant and he will lovingly restore them. And similar sentiments are expressed again and again by God as he chastens his people. So that's the setting that we're looking at as we come into Amos chapter 9, the last chapter of this powerful book. And I want us to come in at verse 7. And he says, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kir? And listen to verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. Now, to me, this, and I hope to you, this becomes a very, very important verse, because he's making a distinction between the kingdom and between the house. And that's where I believe many people are confused as they're trying to understand God's end time purpose with the Jewish people. On the one hand, he says, that's the end of Israel being my kingdom upon earth. He's destroying them as a kingdom from the face of the earth and I'll never ever recover as being my agent people to bring my kingdom across the earth. Now that's very, very clearly said. And as we go into this more fully tomorrow in the New Testament, we'll see how these same sentiments are repeated and even from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to, to the nation of Israel, the kingdom is taken from you and giving, given to another nation that will bring forth the fruit. So we're never going to see the nation, the ethnic nation of Israel being God's kingdom nation on the face of it. That will not happen. That does not mean that, that the Jews will not be part of the kingdom. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they will not be the kingdom nation. Can you hear the distinction here? It's the end of them as a, as a kingdom. But it's not the end of them as a house. He makes this distinction. He says, I'm going to save the house, but I'm going to utterly destroy the kingdom. There will be a future for the people of Israel, but there will not be a future for the kingdom of Israel. Nevertheless, it's, ne it's still 
what David did is a glorious pattern which is not simply confined to the ethnic people of Israel, it's going to be confined to the new nation of God, which as we will see is a multiracial nation. So the pattern is the pattern, but the people are not going to be ethnically Israel, they're going to be anyone who fulfills the conditions. It's going to be those who bring forth the fruits of it. But the house, that's a different matter. And he goes on to say, I'm going to gather up this house, I'm going to search the earth, and every crumb that I can find, I'm going to gather it up and carry it back and bless it. So there's going to be a gathering in of the house, and God is going to be so tender, wherever there's a response, any kind of heart for God, he's going to find it, and he's going to bring them back and make them part of his glorious end-time purpose. But where there's wickedness, then the sword of the Lord will come. We're going to see this much more fully tomorrow as we study some of these things. And I forget whether it's tomorrow or um, Friday morning. But before the week's out, we will have looked at these things. I just want us to understand this difference. There was a time, at the, in, beginning with the tabernacle of David, when Israel had the opportunity to be the beginning of the kingdom of God and his means of spreading it across the face of the whole earth. Going back, you remember to Ezra 19 when he said, you're going, to be, you can, you're going to be a kingdom, but you're going to be a kingdom for the whole earth. It's not something that I'm going to bless you and use you as a kind of uh, special precious people and ignore the rest of the earth. The only, the only purpose of my kingdom is to fill the whole earth. And it's got to have a love and a heart for the whole earth. It's got to, it's got to have not one desire, that's to see the whole earth recovered from Satan by coming under the rule and government of God. So it's not going to be a new thing on the side where these are God's blessed people and they are my privileged people, but I don't care about the rest of the world. It's never been God's heart. And it never will be God's heart. It tells us in Romans chapter 10, for example, that God, it, with God there is no respecter of people. It says that. And then it says in that context there's neither Jew nor Greek. Hello. With God there is no respecter of people, but all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's rich, we're told, to all those that call upon him. And so we've got to see here that now there's a separation from God's dealing with them as a house and God using them as his kingdom people, as a kingdom. He says, I'm not going to use you as my kingdom anymore because I've tried and given you every opportunity and you've always totally failed me, so as a kingdom you're finished. I'm wiping you in terms of a kingdom off the face of the earth, but as a people. I love you just as much, you're just as precious to me, and I'm going to gather you from wherever you've been scattered, and every little particle of that house which wants me, I'm going to find them, and I'm going to gather them in, and make them part of my glorious kingdom. But you will not be the kingdom, although you may come into the kingdom. Do you understand the distinction here? All right, so that's said very, very clearly. And then, he then goes on to say, for surely, uh, I will come down to verse 11. Now, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, here again, see that the purpose of raising it up is not to bless a particular ethnic group of people. The purpose of raising it up is that they may possess the remnant of Edom, or I prefer the translation, the rest of the nations, because that's a better translation. In the Septuagint version, it uses the word 
nations. So it's a world perspective we're being shown here. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. So we've got a, a twofold statement that God's going to raise up the tabernacle of David, but the tabernacle of David has got a gathering in of the world purpose. And in that day when David's tabernacle is raised up, it's going to cause the gathering in of every single ethnicity on the face of the earth. And then in that context again we're told that there will be such an incredible um, harvesting activity that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper. Before we've got one harvest in, they're already getting ready for the next one. Before you've gathered in one crop of, of glorious ripe harvest, we're already planting for the next one. We'll have evangelists sowing while we're trying to do our, our sort of training class. There was 10,000 people got saved last Sunday and we've just started to teach them every day because we're in a hurry how to, the basics of the Christian life and then next Sunday another 10,000 come in. And so we've got, how can we handle this? Well, we're going to have to learn something new because it's going to be, it's going to be that size of harvest. Amen? Glorious days. And this is going to be characterised by the raising up of David's tabernacle. That's why I'm going to sp spend a little bit more time on it. But as I, got, as I prepared for this, God so spoke to me and showed me so much that I really felt God say, I want this to be the next school of the word. And, and what, what I felt God tell me to do was that we, and, and I've got some dates scheduled for February, which I want to check whether this is a good time for you guys. But what I felt we should do is to do three sessions in a slightly longer morning, have a break, and then every evening we'll go into the main sanctuary there and we'll have an actual you know, school, an actual practising and putting into practice the things that we've just been learning in theory. And we're going to get people from all over the city, we're going to get worship and praise teams to come in and we're going to do the thing in reality and we will address the things because God's shown me seven things that the table of tabernacle is used to accomplish and we're going to practise all of them. And I believe that I know we're called in, in San Antonio to raise up a permanent tabernacle of David. And I'm believing by February we shall have, and we probably possibly can even meet in that place, we're going to have a permanent place where 24 hours a day we've got worship and praise. But it isn't just that, that's only one-seventh of the purpose. It's a place of war, it's a place of government, it's a place of pulling down strongholds and principalities. It's a place where I would think at least once a week we'll invite all the lame and the sick to come in and get healed. It'll be a healing house. We'll be praying for the nations and certain people will have a, almost a, probably a full-time ministry, but others of it, like myself, will come in for times of refreshment. We'll come in with our leadership teams. We'll get blessed and then we'll go out again. And this, I believe, will be the power centre of the kingdom as it was in the days of David. That's the first thing David did, was to get that tabernacle working, because he knew that's what God had told him to do. And uh, I know that in certain places, you know, Mike Bickle, who's a great friend of mine, and years and years and years ago, I taught there on what I then saw of the David's tabernacle. It's about one-tenth of what I can see now. And I know they've gone ahead now to establish at least a, a permanent place of prayer, but I just feel the burdens upon me to see this happen in San Antonio. I'm going to have to restructure my schedule. I've got to do lots of things, but I feel we've got to get this thing working so it becomes, and I think you guys, you can go and do it where you come from, and as we get more models of this thing actually functioning, it's going to, it's going to spread quickly across the United States. And it'll be absolutely phenomenal what God's going to do through it. But that's 
so that was the, the, the this is the, the heart and center of the kingdom. God promised that Israel and Judah, or one more thing I forgot, after this incredible harvest, it says in verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine, eat fruit, and I will plant them in their land, and not, no longer shall they be pulled up for the land I have given them, says the Lord of hosts. So I believe there's going to be a glorious and wonderful fulfillment literally in Israel, but even so, it's a working, um, in a way, it's a shadow of what he's going to be doing spiritually all over the earth at the same, same time. I try to think, well, Lord, what's true? Is it, is it spiritually true or is it physically true? Do I take these scriptures literally or do I take them allegorically? And he said, you take both of them together. So I'm running the two parallel together and they will come to conclusion at the same time. And one, the visible, will be like a, a, a clock which tells us how much time we've got left on the perhaps not so visible spiritual thing, but they've got to run side by side. Now, I've said that very quickly. Does that make any sense to you at all? So I I'm see, you know, you know, trying to talk on these things, it's like, in fact, I was praying, God said, it's a bit like going to Northern Ireland, if you know anything about Northern Ireland, and trying to correct their doctrine of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> if you... Because if you are an ardent Mary-worshipping Catholic, any mention of that name that doesn't make her to be worshipped as God, you are about to be shot for your, you know, your, your maligning of her. But if you even mention the word Mary to a, an orange Freeman Protestant, you're shot for daring to, to take away from the Lordship of Christ by giving any place or honour at all, at all to Mary, and you can't win either way. And if you get into this whole subject of the proper place of Israel, you're either labelled as a, as a political Zionist because you're so passionate about getting them back to their land, or you're labelled as an anti-Semitist. And actually, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Both of those extremes are wrong, but I believe there's so many spurious things being said and taught across the church at this present time that we've got to bring a correct balance to these things. In fact, while I've been getting ready for this School of the Word, I've pretty well written a book on this subject. I've, got, I've written about 70 or 80 pages, which I felt God telling me to write because it's got to be put out to the churches so that we walk in the balance of Scripture and not in the error on either side. And I'm going to finish that off as quickly as I can. I thought we were going to teach it for a week, but the Lord said, no, that's better in, in book form. It'll give people time to read it and meditate on it. And then, of course, eventually teach it wherever that needs to be taught. Because I, I don't want to don't, don't be dragged off into error on either side. And you can see how the devil is trying hard to cause confusion here so that we're not all in unity together to see these things come to pass. The same is true in spiritual warfare. Um, I'm going to show you um, tomorrow particularly how because of where the kingdom now is, it's perfectly, perfectly biblical, perfectly legitimate to go into the heavens and pull down demonic strongholds. But you've got to be in a certain place in the kingdom before that's a valid ministry. So if you're not there, then it's, too, it's, it's not wrong to go, it's just premature to go. So I want to get us into that place of maturity where we can function in that realm, see these demonic principalities come crashing down and bring that glorious liberation to our cities. But if we say that it's illegal, it's like trying to win a war with ground troops only. 
These days, that's not a, a good way to fight a war. And say, well, we're not permitted to use air power. Well, if we don't use air power, our infantry is going to be absolutely massacred on the ground. So we need to move in both of these realms together. Amen? So I want to clear up some of the mis misunderstandings about spiritual warfare. That will be all these things I hope to accomplish uh, in the next day or so. God giving us grace. Amen? So let's move on. So God promised that Israel and Judah would survive as a house, but not as a kingdom. And these words were fulfilled in the period 608 to 605 BC, when the temple and the city were completely destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. After their return from exile in 538 BC, the temple and the city were slowly rebuilt, and you know the struggle that was, and finally the temple was finished in 516 BC, but the city was not completed until, or not really seriously begun until 445 BC. But it, the fact is that the kings never again ruled over Israel, and never was it called a kingdom. During the period of the Maccabees, you know what I mean by the Maccabees? During the period of the Maccabees, there were several of the Maccabee leaders that attempted to call themselves kings, but they were never received or accepted. When the house of Herod, which was nothing more than a vassal um, king under the, 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 the authority of the Roman Empire, but it, it paid the Romans politically to raise up the house of Herod and to put them as a kind of vassal governing authority over, over Judah at that time. And the Herods took the title of king, but the people of Israel never ever accepted it. And Herod, who was on the throne at the time that Jesus was walking the earth, he was half, uh, Jew, uh, half Jew and he was half Edomite. He was a, and, and he was never accepted. And that's why he tried so hard to get acceptance. And the people turned away from looking for a natural king and never received any of these people as their king. And their hope turned entirely upon the day when Messiah came. And so they were prepared and ready for the king to come in the person of Messiah. But when he finally came in Jesus, they missed him because he didn't come in the way that they expected. And even the disciples were still under, under the delusion, even after Jesus was risen from the dead, that he had come to establish again the kingdom of Israel. They said, is not, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel, but is this the time you're going to do it? So this was deeply embedded in their thinking. And, of course, Jesus never directly answered that because he knew they wouldn't understand it. He said, well, don't worry about that for now. Let's go and get the world saved and go out into all the world and preach the gospel. But I'm going to show you how um, there, there, there was a, a, eventually, when the full revelation came, and that did not come until Acts chapter 15, when the Gentiles started to pour into the church. Only then did they begin to fully understand what the kingdom was all about. And only then, as, as we read in Acts 15, were they able then to see the prophecy of Amos begin to be fulfilled, and they began to raise up again the tabernacle of David. Okay? And that's when the full power of the kingdom came again and began to touch the world. And what we're seeing at this end of the age is a restoration of these things. I hope that all makes sense to you. All right? So let's look at a few things. So David um, wanted God's presence at the center of his administration, at the center of the city. 
And, and this is halfway through page 26, uh, number three. And the presence and glory of God was symbolized by the ark and had left Moses' tabernacle about 70 years earlier. His first action was to bring back the ark, but no one of that generation had ever lived in God's presence and they hadn't learned what things they had to do before God could come. And we could be in that category. Many of us here would say, well, Lord, I want you to come. I want you to want to see it happen. But we have to learn a lot of new things before God can come. Uh, page 27, the ark was not brought back to Moses' tabernacle, although it was still standing. Now, here's an interesting thing. The ark, I'm sorry, the tabernacle of Moses was at a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh is approximately 75 miles away from Jerusalem. And at some point, and the Bible doesn't tell us when or how, at some point, the tabernacle of Moses was moved from Shiloh and was put on a mountain called Mount Gibeah, or some people call it Mount Gibeon, which was somewhere between five and seven miles away from Mount Zion, where David's tabernacle was erected. And they moved the whole tabernacle there, and all the worship and all the religious structure of that tabernacle was moved to Mount Gibeon. Now, that's, that's just a picture to me. I'll tell you what it speaks to me of. is when, when people have came into the baptism of the Spirit and began to move in this new liberty of praise and worship, then what happened in quite a few churches was they said, well, they've got some good things there, but we don't want to go all the way. We don't want to be like those you know, crazy charismatic nutcases, but what we'll, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get a few guitars in, and we'll get a slightly modernized form of worship, and, but we don't want to go all the way with them. And so they sort of moved from Shiloh to Gibeon. They said, well, we, we'll, get, we'll get near the edge of these things, but we're not going to get all the way. I saw this happen in many, many, and still happening today, many, many denominations. And you know what I'm talking about? I think you do. And so, so it, it moved a bit closer to where this tabernacle of David was, but it, it still maintained a self-respectable distance and said, well, look, we're not them, but we're, you know, we're not going to pray like them. We're not going to worship like them, not all the way. And we don't accept spiritual gifts and we're certainly going to let any tongues around here, but we're going to use some of the, also they've got a few things which I'm sure our young people would enjoy and it'll help us to have a slightly more lively service. So we'll move within sort of seven miles, but we won't go all the way. And some churches have got, like some of the, Baptist churches that I'm still connected with, they will have a sort of Gibeah night on Saturday night. And then they go back to traditional services on Sunday morning. There's quite a few places that know what we've got to do is we've got to give people what they want. We've got to have the sort of products which, which will meet the various tastes of the market that we're trying to meet. And all this kind of stuff is going on and you know perfectly well what I'm talking about. But that will never bring back the power and the glory of God and it never establish the kingdom. Now, let's look at a few things at David's tabernacle. First of all, it was a simple tent which was put on Mount Zion where the Jebusites had previously mocked David and David and his leaders would spend time in God's presence seeking his face and exercising rule and receiving direction and wisdom for ruling the city and ruling the kingdom. It's, it was a place of government, by the way, as well as a place of worship and praise. Let's go to Isaiah for a moment. Come to Isaiah chapter 16. Remember, Isaiah's writing at almost the same time as Amos. 
And he's speaking out against Moab at the time, but in chapter 16, that eventually he's going to see transformation in Moab. That in the end, Moab is going to come, we're told in verse 12, and they will come to his sanctuary and they, pray, and they will pray. But come back in, in verse 4 of chapter 16. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Because what's... Okay. What happened with the first tabernacle of David was that when he established his tabernacle and brought rule and government, even Moab felt the blessing and the power of the kingdom. Hello? All those surrounding nations felt the blessing and the power of the kingdom because David was able to establish his rule even in their cities. But he goes on to say, devastation ceases the oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And you go again and again and again through the scripture and you find that God's rule, God's strong scepter, it goes out from Mount Zion. It goes out from this tent. It's become a place of powerful rule and powerful authority. And it's... it's the tabernacle of David exercising rule and government by the power of the prayer, the intercession and the worship and the authority of speaking that goes on there. Does this make sense to you? All right. Now, this tabernacle of David, verse number 7 of, of page 27, everything about the tabernacle was new covenant. It was totally illegal according to the law of Moses. Because what happened was this. Here's David, who's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. There's a simple tent with no uh, place for sacrificing sins. There's no outer court. There's no holy place. And there's no holiest of all. There's just a simple tent. And as you step through that simple tent and draw back the flap, you're in the presence of God. Now, if you had done that, in the tabernacle of Moses, you would have immediately dropped dead. Amen? Because David, David wasn't a priest. He wasn't of a, a Levite. And yet, in the tabernacle of David, he, he and his glory boys just walk into God's presence any time, whereas according to Moses' law, it was done once a year, only by the high priest on the Day of Atonement and only after very complex sacrifices had been made. And even in those days, they were so scared of that holiest of all that they used to tie, traditionally this has been taught, they used to tie a rope on the high priest's leg that if he dropped dead, they weren't going to go in and get him. They would just pull him out on the rope. No one was going to go into that place because you didn't come out of there alive. Now suddenly, it's totally okay to walk into God's presence without a particular day, without any particular ceremony, without being even of the tribe of Levi, and you can just have this face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. And we, we're told from things that went on, and of course Psalm 110, which was written in David's tabernacle, that the priesthood of the tabernacle was the priesthood of, of Melchizedek. It was not the priesthood of Levi at all. No sacrifices for sin were ever offered in David's tabernacle. 
there was sacrifices of peace offerings and of burnt offerings, but never for sin, because they knew that their sin had been dealt with by a much, much better sacrifice. And they were living in the new covenant, having a face-to-face, -face, unveiled relationship with the living God, which was absolutely new covenant. And it was what God had always longed for, what God had always wanted. And for one generation, for 33 and a half years, as if God gave us a prophetic sign and said, now that's what I call worship. And that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I want. I want this kind of relationship with my people. And because David fulfilled the conditions, then he was able to live as a New Testament believer. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified in time. But we're also told in Scripture that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. It wasn't just a moment of history, it was an eternal event. And as I mentioned to you the other day, 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified, Abraham became a New Testament believer. His relationship was with Melchizedek. It was never with Levitical priesthood. He accepted bread and wine, the elements of the New Covenant. He paid tithes directly to Melchizedek. And his whole relationship was a relationship of faith. Hello. So there was, there was total New Testament believing and relationship by the two major patriarchs that are always referred to in the New Testament as being the founders of where God is taking us. And Moses' tabernacle was left there, still carrying on, it still was doing business, but it was not part of the power or the authority. And so for 33 and a half years, you had a David's tabernacle that you could go to if you were, you were able to, to see it, or if you couldn't, you were given the soft option. Come to number 12 on 27. Many scriptures teach us that Mount Zion, where this tent was pitched, was the power center out from which the rule or government of the kingdom flowed. And I've quoted Psalm 110, Psalm 2, where it says the Lord will have him in derision. He set his king on his holy hill. Psalm 45, Isaiah 16, I've already quoted, and so on and so forth. So we have this sort of two things going on at the same time. If you, um, we also are told, if you go back to Second um, um, Chronicles 16, you'll find that they also at the same time They set up the, the, in, on Mount Gibeah, they set up the, the, tab, the tabernacle of Moses, and there they even appointed Zadok, the priest, to minister to them. Let's see if I can find that. Did I say Second Chronicles? I meant to say, I meant to say First Chronicles, of course. Come to Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, First Chronicles, let me get that right. First Chronicles, chapter 16, and we find that from verse 37, he left Asaph and his brothers before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, were gatekeepers. And verse 39, Zadok the priest and his brethren the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord on the high place which was at Gibeon. And so we have the Levitical priesthood holding Moses' law-type 
ceremonies on Mount Gibeah, and in seven miles away, we have Asaph and Chenaniah and David and his glory boys living in total, complete New Testament covenant relationship with God on Mount Zion, and they're just seven miles apart. I wonder which place Michael, David's wife, went to on Saturday. <laughs> I have a feeling that she wasn't too comfortable with this, this extravagant worship. And she said, no, we're going to go. And God was gracious. He gave them a, a generation where if they couldn't make the transition, he provided for them what was comfortable, what they were used to. But what we've got to recognize is that the power of God and the presence of God was never there. All it was was it was a, it was a satisfying traditional religion that kept them feeling peaceful and comfortable. But if you wanted to be part of what God was doing, if you wanted to be part of what God was, was, was moving in, you had to go, you had to, you had to learn how to live in that place of God's presence on the tabernacle of David. It went on for 33 and a half years. And I'm sure you can see the present picture that's being painted for us, can't you? So Melchizedek's priesthood was the priesthood of that tabernacle and they lived in God's glorious unveiled presence, and yet they lived. Many in that generation couldn't make the transition. It was a totally new way of approaching God. So God allowed the tabernacle of Moses to remain standing on Mount Gibeon and gave them Zadok, a Levitical priest, to conduct services more to their liking. It was comfortable in its tradition, but there was no power or no authority there. And when we look at the coming of the kingdom in the New Testament, we will see why the raising up again of the David, tabernacle of David was a crucial step in the full release of the power of the kingdom. When this tabernacle is raised again at the end of the age, it will cause a mighty harvest to be reaped for all mankind and all the Gentiles who are called my by name, says the Lord. The harvest will be so abundant that one harvest will not be gathered in before the next one is ready for reaping. It will also be a means by which waste cities will be rebuilt. Verse number point 16, although a Jew, David abandoned Moses' law and brought in a new tabernacle expressing the new covenant. It was totally free from the traditions and seven of Moses' law and yet God was with them. Here the kingdom was first established and its power was felt on the earth. And God promised that it would be an everlasting kingdom with the risen, obviously the risen Jesus as its permanent king. Just like the separation between Moses' tabernacle and David's tabernacle, the kingdom has got to be Davidic. It mustn't be Mosaic. It mustn't be of Moses. Amen? You see that difference there? Now, as we begin to see these things, we realize as we're moving towards the end of the age and God is stirring certain things in the earth, it helps us to clarity as to what is okay and what's not okay. And also, it helps us to see the gentleness of God with those who are having a problem to make the transition. He's not vindictive, he's not cruel, and he will accommodate people who can't come into the fullness of it because of their traditions. But we also got to be quite clear that although he will bless them to a degree in their traditions, they will not be the cutting-edge people that are now powerfully advancing the kingdom. And I know personally what I want to be part of. 
And I know where I belong. It's not a, it's not a matter of age, it's a matter of, of choice. Amen? All right, so is, does that, uh, that's very, very quick. And I, as I said, I felt that we needed to do this so carefully and practice it all so fully that I felt we're going to just have a, a week when we just abandon ourselves to this. To this. Uh, let me just tell you this, that just a few weeks ago, we were in, uh, all of us, all as leaders together uh, from Africa, we were together as an apostolic team in Nakuru at Mark Kariuki's um, conference, he has it once a year called Impact, and it's a, it was, I don't know how many thousands of people were there, quite a few thousand, but all the apostolic team, these men, came together, and, and, and the power of that apostolic team ministering together, none, we've no, no one's experienced anything like it. We had, we had an, a, a, if you've seen or know about Transformation 2 and the visit of God to the, um, what, what are those uh, Indians on the Arctic Circle? The, into it, yeah. And now, my daughter sent me a tape several years ago of, of when the Spirit came, and it was like it was the most strange noise I've ever heard. Well, we were in this meeting, and some of these guys, Bernard was there, and, uh, and, and on one of these meetings, this same thing happened. We heard this incredible noise, and we were flat on our faces. How long for? Sorry? How long, Joe? I'm sorry? About 20 minutes, there was this tremendous roar, this noise, and some saw like a white, you know, like, it was like a white mist of God's presence. There were people in that meeting that had been stuck in certain um, uh, things in their lives, and God just came and zapped people. I mean, I, I was out for a long time, but they were totally transformed by that encounter. Then there came a certain point. Now, in, in Kenya, there is a mountain called Mount Kenya, and on the top of that mountain, there is an ancient temple that goes back to the ancient ritual tribalistic religion of that country. And that's an ancient historic monument, so no one touches it. It's nothing more than an occult shrine, which is, which is throbbing with the power of darkness and is hindering the advance of the kingdom in Kenya. And God spoke through me that we're going to go and we're going to raise up a tablet of Dakel of David. That's like a Mount Zion that we're, go that we're going to take. There's going to be a physical tabernacle of David right on that mountain. And, and, and God led us to turn in this meeting where we had, and we turned and we addressed that mountain. We spoke to it from, with the authority of, of the Spirit upon us. And from this mountain, all round its foothills, they grow a crop which is used for drug taking. What's the name of that crop? Mera. It's a, it's a bit like opium, isn't it? It's, it's in the family of opium and all the foothills of that mountain are used to grow this drug which then brings many, many thousands of people into captivity. A bit like the opium in the, you know, in the early days of China. It's not purified into the modern horrific drugs we have in America, but it's bad enough even in its natural form. And it's a curse and a menace and all the slopes of this mountain are used to grow this crop. With, and we cursed it in the authority and name of Jesus, within a week we got a report that a worm had come into that crop and had destroyed, already destroyed 200 acres of that crop and it was completely irresistible, no one had any cure for it and it was destroying the whole harvest. Hallelujah. And that happened just like that. Uh, and and you, could, you could taste the beginning of the power of David's kingdom. Things which have ruled over this nation or any other nation represented here 
for centuries, they're going to be pulled down and they're going to be transformed and changed once that tabernacle of David is raised up. It's got a power and it's got an authority which we have to have. It won't just touch our city, but it will it'll be capable and powerful enough to deal with national issues. That's why I'm totally convinced we've got to learn how to see it fully and gloriously raised up. Why it's such an important issue of scripture and why it's so fundamental to the kingdom. Now I hope that makes some sense to you. Okay, so just like the separation between Moses' tabernacle and David's tabernacle, there's got to be a separation here. Well, I want us now to move on on page 28, just begin to touch on this, and that's government in the kingdom. Isaiah 9, which we looked at the other day, I think I made a statement then, which I'm repeating now, that the victories of war are only made secure by the establishing of right government. I want to spend some time on government in the kingdom, or if you like, what, what's the right kind of church government if we're going to have a, a kingdom church? And the first thing that's said about Jesus is that the government will be upon his shoulders. And the first thing that's said about the kingdom is that of the increase of his government of peace, there should be no end. And we're also told that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It always says his government, but it has to be exercised through proper delegated authority. And perhaps just at the end, the rest of this session, I want to deal on page 29 with what I have come to call the Jethro Principle. And you'll see how that all connects up when it comes to government. Come to Exodus 18. And we'll come in at verse 13. Jethro's come to visit Moses. And in verse 13 it says that on the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they, have a difficult, when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who, you, who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God and for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. So please notice here what a primary leader's first responsibility is. It's to stand before God. That's why Peter said in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6, it's not right for us to give ourselves to waiting at tables in the widow's distribution. It's not that we're too proud or anything like that. We, we'd love to do it. But our calling is to give ourselves to prayer and to minister the word. Our first job is to get, in, get before God and hear his word 
for the people. And that's to be our first priority. And then we're to bring that word to the people. So that, we're being taught a principle here that there are different responsibilities for different people. And although Moses wanted to be a, a good pastor, wanted to be a good shepherd, there were certain things that he was trying to do which were not right for him to do. So this is what you've got to do, says Jethro. Verse 20, you should teach you should teach them the statutes and the laws and you will show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. Now please notice here that there is a definite and thorough preparation of these people that are going to be the delegated authority of Moses. They know his heart, they know his ways, and they know what God has said in him and through him. They, they sort of you understand that? You don't just appoint people, but you've got to spend your time in preparing these people because it is a, a statistical fact long since proven by church growth ministries that if you personally deal with the needs of people, you automatically limit yourself to an effective church of not more than 100 because you can't pastor much more than those that many people. So if you care for people yourself, then you are going to limit yourself to a church of just a little bit more than 100, which is why many, many churches don't grow. It's because of the way that they're pastored. And we're going to see that this problem has to be properly addressed by what, I'm, what, what I call the, the Jethro principle, but it's, it's right through as a foundational principle of the kingdom. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, notice the things here, we could spend half an hour on each one of these, and place such over them to be rulers or captains, as some translations have it, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they will judge for themselves. So it will be easier for you, but they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will be able to go there to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So they judged the people at all times, brought the hard cases they brought to Moses, and they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went to his own land. Now that principle, which we just read out there, you'll find that it's right through the New Testament. You notice when I read 1 Chronicles 13, David consulted with his captains of thousands, with hundreds and every other leader. You'll find that Solomon had the same thing. You'll find that the restoration of Nehemiah, all the way through, the way that the people of God were cared for was that there was delegated authority according to the measure that these people had upon their lives. Now that's why again and again we read in the New Testament and Jesus himself was very, very careful. He, he, he said, now look, um, he said, just, just be content really with who you are and stop being competitive to get to the top. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, he said, you've got to, he said, don't let, um, I'm trying to think, I've got James translation. Um, don't be conformed to this world. But, re but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And one of the things that we've got to be transformed about is not so much 
the sins of this world as the methodology of this world. Because you find that there's a great deal of secular understandings of management and leadership that's in the church to the detriment of the church. Because in the world, if you want to be successful, you have to have ambition to get to the top and you've got to be competitive. In verse 3 of Romans 12, Paul goes on to say, he said, I want each one of you to have a sober assessment of yourselves and not to think too highly of yourselves, but to have a sober assessment and to, and to have an honest perspective of the measure of the gift of faith that God has dealt to each one of you. Now, God's not, not, God is, a, is obviously a very sensible God and he's going to create people to fulfill these different roles. And if he's going to create an order of government in the kingdom with captains, with, with people like, like the Davids or the Jameses having what I'm going to call you know, that, that higher administrative authority, he's going to create a lot of people to have the, the, the other levels of authority. I've carefully avoided the word lower. I almost said it and I stopped myself. Because what we've got to see is that, that, that to, to be successful you first of all got to love what God made you to be. That's going back to Psalm 139. You, you want to look in the mirror and say, God, you did a great job when you made me. I really like what you did. I'm fearfully and wonderfully weighed, and that my soul knows right well. And God is clearly going to create a lot of people who are lower levels of gifting in order that they are totally fulfilled in their gift. For every, say, captain of a thousand, you're going to need, it's simple mathematics, you're going to need a hundred captains of tens to work under them. So captains of tens and fifties and hundreds are going to be a lot more common than captains of thousands. Yes. Now, the rethinking of the kingdom is this, that we do not measure ourselves by how far up the promotional ladder we climb. That's not success. Success is, because it also goes on to tell us in Psalm 139, that God has written our days before there was yet one of them. We're told in, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, we're told that God, before the foundation of the world, he foreordained good things for us to walk in. So success is not getting higher and higher up some imagined promotional ladder. Success is doing with all my might the thing that God created me to do. What I've got to do is to find the slot in God's eternal plan. There's a unique slot that's already labelled Alan Vincent and there are things that I'm supposed to do within a certain time period which God's already appointed. If I get into that slot, fulfil all that he's given me to do, I could not be more successful. To totally do the will of God, whether I do it as a captain of ten or a captain of thousands, it's to what degree I do the will of God that success is measured. So if I'm created by God to be a captain of ten, but by, by muscle power, I get myself promoted beyond my measure and try and function, for example, as a pastor of a church when God never really called me to that role. Then I'm actually struggling to hold that position because it's too big for me. And secondly, I won't be successful at it. And thirdly, I'm living in blatant disobedience to God, so he's not going to bless me in it. So if I get back to what God created me to be and to get in the right order of what God called me to be, then I can see success. 
On the other hand, if God created me to be a captain of a thousand, gave me unusual gifts and abilities, but I'm lazy with my gifting and just sort of jog along at a much lower level than God called me to, then I'm equally disobedient. Because of to whom much has been given, much is required. Amen? So the whole thinking about what I am in the church has got to be restructured to think kingdom. And in the kingdom, you don't think that I'm above him or I'm above her or I'm beneath him or I'm beneath her. I just think, am I in the will of God for my life? And that's success. And when that really, really happens, then we can have a whole bunch of wonderful people all fulfilling the gifting and calling that's upon their lives without any competitiveness concerning ranking and together, and our purpose is to get the kingdom done, uh, get the kingdom established, not to get myself promoted. Now, I think, you, I, we, I think we sent out some notes here because I just ran them off, did them this morning. Well, I, I was working last night, as you can see. And I put down here, have you got these notes? They were just handed around. Discovering your measure as a leader. Have you got them? And I've tried to set out the characteristics of these different ministry levels as far as the church is concerned. And I find that these fit perfectly into efficient present church structure. And we've all got to find out who we are. So a captain of ten, I would describe that their function in the church is to be a pastoral home group leader, to be a pastor of a cell. And they help the pastor of the church by looking after a group of people. And the measure is, because if you're talking, all, I, all the numbers in the Bible, please don't blame me for this, but all the numbers in the Bible always deal with the men. And the women and children are added for extra measure. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was besides women and children. And that's a sort of consistent through Scripture. So when we talk about Captain of Ten, we're talking about ten men who normally would have a family. So we're talking about something like maybe anything from 15 to 40 people. That's a captain of 10. He, and I've said he's a father or mother of an extended family. He doesn't normally have any public ministry, but deals with people on a one-to-one -one basis. Doesn't need any great organizational skills and doesn't need a public pulpit teaching gift. He may have it, but he doesn't need it. But he does know scripture but he imparts the truth in a conversational way. He's a lover of people, delights to spend time with them. Small things matter to him. And so, in other words, Mary's birthday, John's got a new job, Jane has just had a new baby. These are the things that are important to him, and he's got time for these things. His life and his marriage are an example to others, and his main gift is pastoral. But he doesn't he said, well, you say, Jim, what are we going to do to take the city? He hasn't got a clue because that's not his fear. He doesn't think that way and he doesn't see that way. He doesn't initiate strategy or vision, but he's a loyal follower of those who do. He speaks positively, he's an encourager. And here's another important thing, he inculcates, you know that word? He inculcates loyalty into those who follow him towards the leadership. He's not a rebellious group. He's committing the people more and more strongly to their leadership. His life is characterized by joy and thanksgiving and he's stewarding these people for others and he knows it. Now he could be a person of greater stature on his way up, but some people, that's what they're created to be. And after 40 years, they can be perhaps one of the most fantastic home group leaders that the church has ever had. And that's successful, that's what they're called to be. Is that okay? Should never go out and pastor a church with that sort of gifting.
He's called to work within a church as one of the team members of that church. Then we come to captains of ten. Uh, I'm sorry, we can, we, this can also be expressed in the form of a deacon in charge of a task. And he has many of the qualities above, but he will have ability to organize and supervise the task allotted to him. It could be, you know, all kinds of things. Maintaining the property, it could be uh, a worship team, it could be, you know, the PA and the, the electronic side of the thing. It, it could be hospitality. It's got all kinds of ways of outworking it. Okay, and notice in Luke 10, Luke 16, verses 10, that he's faithful in little. He's going to be given much. Amen? Captains of 50, well, this, this is a, the congregational leader or elder of a church that could grow between 70 to 200 people. He's a lover of people, and they love him and feel free to come to him. He's on first-name relationships with everybody. He wants to be known by everybody and have time for them. And he's a great desire always to be available to everybody. He can teach publicly as well as personally. That was, that's what marks him out as being different to a captain of ten. He has some organizational skills, but he does everything himself with others helping him. Like if, they, if the church needs repainting, he'll be down there with them, wielding the brush. That's, that's him. And, and everything that has to be done, he's there. And, and, and these are incredible, fantastic men who, who lead by modeling things in front of everybody. Everybody comes to him for help. Everybody comes to him for decision. His concerns are people and his vision is local. And they're the sort of people that can take wrecks that come in out of the world and they transform them into beautiful, remade creatures in Christ. Wonderful, incredible ministry. But it's limited by the fact he must be in touch with everybody. It's limited by the fact that he has no idea how to discern leaders, develop them and put